This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And as if Canada's COVID-19 vaccine rollout was not riddled with enough problems, on Friday evening we learned about the abrupt dismissal of the guy in charge, Major General Denis Fortin. He's being replaced by Brigadier General Krista Brody, a 30-plus-year veteran who's been involved in the rollout. And given that she is a woman, the authorities can be reasonably sure that no sexual misconduct allegations about her will surface. Now, what we know about the investigation into Fortin so far is that a woman made a complaint two months ago alleging that he exposed himself 30 years ago. Uh, if that's the extent of it, then I have to say it reminds me of the worst excesses of the beginning of the Me Too movement. We'll get into that in a moment. And speaking of the rollout, Ontario is sitting on 50,000 doses of AstraZeneca set to expire soon, while many people are clamoring for second shots. What do you think of that? Uh, on Friday, on our free-for-all Friday, I had caller after caller saying they had no issue and they want their second shot. So is the province just going to let this go to waste? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let us bring in our strategy panel, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Keppel Bianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard Highroad, and Charles Souza, former Finance Minister of Ontario and Member of Provincial Parliament for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, Libby. Okay, let us begin with uh, this uh, dismissal or resignation of Major General Denis Fortin. Karen? Yeah, there's, it's, it's troubling on a number of aspects. Uh, you know, first and foremost, the, the complaint came in two months ago, and uh, I don't know, you know, why it took two months to do something. But then to have have him find out about it by by a, a reporter, and then learn the content of the allegations, which I tend to agree with you. I mean, if that's the extent of it, it I mean, it's a little bizarre to go around exposing yourself. But if it happened thirty years ago, you know. I mean, I don't know what the reasonable explanation would be, but it certainly seems like now is not the time to replace him in his role if this was the indiscretion three decades ago and there hasn't been a, a complaint since. And, I mean, not to excuse that kind of behavior, but I think that more investigation needed to get done in the two months that the complaint came forward that to then warrant the removal of this individual at a critical point in our vaccine rollout with no explanation. I, I think that it's troubling, to say well, the least. I mean, it's it's completely bizarre. So first of all, unless there's video, and I imagine there isn't, there I don't yeah, know how you ago. adjudicate this. She says it happened. He said <laughs> it didn't. How does something like that happen? Well, uh, uh, it comes to mind a 
uh, youthful uh, drinking, something like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> makes <laughs> yeah. makes sense to me. And right, thirty years ago, it could have happened. I don't know, but yeah. you know, there was no. But if there was no real assertion of authority or making someone feel uncomfortable, if it was done in the context, to your point, of a stupid drinking game or a prank or just being stupid. Being okay, really well, stupid. Yeah. It's, it's something really stupid. Chalk that one up to being stupid. Well, yeah. And it's, to me, I mean, um, let's bring in Charles. I, to, to me, it's not only that, but I think that there's a serious problem with sexual assault uh, in the armed forces. And removing somebody for something like this, if this is the extent of it, I think completely undermines that. Yeah, it's that's unfortunate. I mean, we, it's obviously a pervasive issue that's been happening within the military, and we've had two others that have, uh, you know, these allegations have been now every three or four weeks, another story comes out, and I think that's part of the problem. It's They didn't want this thing to have legs. They, they may have overreacted. Uh, be it as it may, they... There seems to be a culture of some harassment and intimidation within the military over years. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know what the story is. We don't know what's happened and 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 why it's being done. And it's unfortunate that we now need real leadership as we roll these vaccines out. Um, I, yeah, it, it's more, this is a bigger issue that they're dealing with in regards to the military and. I guess this is symptomatic of those issues. Well, I mean, the other thing that happens is that, you know, once uh, we see a few allegations, they start looking for, for things. I mean, it just, I mean, it, it boggles the mind and they were trying to bury the serious ones. And, and I mean, John, do you have a view? Yeah, it's 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 a really unfortunate situation on a number of fronts, quite frankly. Maybe not least of which, of course, is that you know yet another black mark with respect to um, uh, you know with respect to the to the armed forces and and the fact that there's now you know another example or another issue alleged uh, sexual misconduct that is sort of ripping through the uh, the armed forces, which is a huge problem and something that is, is becoming systemic in, in some ways. And I think that's a, a huge headache for the prime minister to have to deal with. But I also think that it's coming at the worst time when, when vaccines are still at the stage where we're getting out there and, and you know, we're still, the, the prime minister and the government are still negotiating vaccines coming in. Uh, and to lose somebody who has had, you know, a bit of control on that issue at the federal level uh, is a huge, is a huge, um, uh, you know, issue and a challenge, quite frankly. Now, I, I know the new person is going to come in and, and she's going to be uh, she's going to be good. I know she's had some experience with this as well, ready. She's apparently been involved minister, with it. She's well, apparently been involved in the rollout. So that's yeah, good I, news. But yeah, that, that, that's what I was going to say. There, there's, she's not sort of completely foreign to this. The only other thing I would say, though, Libby, is that the prime minister has put himself in this position. He, you know, he comes in claiming that he was a feminist prime minister and, and that he was going to get to the bottom of all this issue. And, and that, you know, at the height of the Me Too movement, he was, you know, he was actually even, you know, reprimanding his own MPs and, and others that were falling in this kind of uh, this kind of pattern. So, you know, he had no other choice but to have to remove um, um, uh, Fortan because of that. Now, the issue of 30 years ago or versus, you know, 10, 10 days ago or whatever the case may be, I think that's a whole different argument because now 
you know, in, in height of the, the Me Too movement, any sort of allegations on this has to be dealt with. And especially if you're a prime minister who claims to be a feminist prime minister, you're going to have to deal with it even more abruptly as, as he has. But the fact that, that, you know, the opposition are going to jump on is this two months. Why did it wait two months when D&D knew uh, that that this was happening two months ago. Why did they wait two months for this to happen? Are they were they doing their own investigation before this happened? Well, or, they were too you know, apparently. So the question. The, they were too busy investigating uh, other uh, others. Yeah. Others yeah. and Arnold, yeah. I mean, it. it I, I'm sorry. This is if this is the extent of the of the allegation. I mean, you said what choice does he have but to remove him? How about removing his defense minister? Yeah, who knew I about the more Lydia. serious allegations? How about that? Well, in, in the past, too, quite frankly, Lydia, like the, the defense minister, I have I, no way that he should be still there, given the fact that this has gone on under his watch a number of times, not just once. This is like this is like a pattern under uh, Defense Minister Shejan's uh, uh, leadership and, and oversight. This is incredible that he's still there. Well, there, there was. I was looking at a list of people who uh, are are probably headed to be shuffled out, uh, the, uh, you know, according to uh, some pundits, including Patty Haidu, who, in my opinion, is just totally out of her depth. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think that there's a number of them that have to be that have to be changed, and I and I think that you know in a minority government, it's always a question of timing of when to do it. But I I got to tell you now, I think that going into a summer recess uh, is the best time for for cabinet shuffles, uh, as Charles will will know. I think that you know you always have to as a leader, you have to sort of determine what the when the best time is. I think going into a summer break always off, offers an opportunity for uh, for any leader, be a premier or a prime minister, to shuffle cabinet. Yeah, Charles, uh, should they be doing a shuffle sometime soon, and who should go? Yeah, well, there's a lot of discussion about that possibility, and of course there have been some minor shuffles, as some people have uh, resigned, like Navdeep Baines. I'm more concerned about real leadership, though. I mean, when you look at Brigadier Krista Brody, her her experience and, and her um, ability and credentials are tremendous. I think she'll shine in this role. I mean, we the seat. Here's here the things I think are required with these vaccine rollouts and with leadership in the, in the federal areas. We need real leadership. We need secure supply. We need proper distribution systems, and we need frontline champions to make it all happen. We also need less mixed messages, right? These confusions around efficacy, the hot spots, the lockdowns. I think the Brigadier General can manage four of those buckets. I don't think she can manage the the mm-hmm. the, 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 the communication systems that that seems to make it all work. Well, the public. let's let's get to that. So, first of all, it's up to the provinces to decide um, what they're going to use. And uh, this is another thing that I want to get into here. Uh, I'm going to be talking to some epidemiologists in the back half of the show, but we have 50,000 doses of AstraZeneca. And I think I heard Christine Elliott referred to them as, you know, very few, not a big deal. But the provinces paused the use of this in first doses. Uh, that in itself is controversial, but a bunch of provinces has done that. But what about second doses? The evidence that we have shows that uh, the chances of getting a blood clot if you use it as a second dose is one in a million or something. And why are they holding on to this? Are they going to let this go to waste, Karen? Yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing. Like, you listen to it and you're like, okay, there was a moment of communication that could have, the government could have owned, 
in the province, which is we're not getting as much AstraZeneca shipments. We're going to try to reduce mixed doses as much as possible. We're not giving first doses of AstraZeneca anymore because of this reason. But we have 50,000 doses. We're going to immediately dispense them to the pharmacy for second doses. It's clean. It's clear. It makes sense. People would understand. Yes, some people are going to get their second dose before I get mine. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay under the circumstances to let those go to waste. To sit and navel gaze, to look around the room to figure out what to do is it is, is unbelievable to me. Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, you know, there are are countries like India where people, even healthcare workers, have not had their first dose. Right, but I don't even know if we could get them there in time before they expire. I, I agree I with you. I think they're expiring in a couple of weeks. They're so expiring it, in a. It in makes a, no sense. It makes. Zero cents, and as I was saying in the intro, uh, on our free for all Friday, I had lots of people co- calling in and saying I would happily take my second dose. I had Absolutely. people here at work saying I would happily take my second dose because I think people. I don't know. I can't speak for all people, but you know, there's more reticence about mixing vaccines than a second dose of AstraZeneca. Well, exactly. That's up in the air, uh, Charles. I mean. Why are they doing this? Is there a liability issue or what? Yeah, I, I don't know. It makes no sense to me. I mean, if I look at the stats, Canada is about 3.8% fully vaccinated, whereas the world is about 4.6%. We've got the vaccines. People want the demands there. I mean, these late-night doses that are happening, uh, there's one that happened in Mississauga. Um, people came. People want uh, the ability to come in. I've seen it done, or I've been hearing what they've done in other parts of the world, they register themselves as they walk in, and then and then immediately they register for a second vaccine. And if the vac and if the availability is there, let them have it. I'll take it. I'd happily take a second my second vac my second dose of AstraZeneca. Uh, I'll take whatever as long as it works. <laughs> well, what what did you get? Your you what was your I, first? I, so my first one was at a hospital, so I got the Pfizer vaccine. The okay, first well dose. then you should probably but get there's a Pfizer. There's real apprehension now with Johnson and Johnson as well. I don't know. People don't seem to talk much about them or that vaccine and and AstraZeneca. And this is where the mixed messaging and the confusion and the 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 science of it. It has to be better explained so people can feel comfortable in getting their vaccines. My son lives in Ireland. He only has AstraZeneca. Yeah. They only have AstraZeneca. Millions and millions of people have, and, and they're opening up. Uh, it, I mean, it is, and we're getting apparently 254,000 more doses of AstraZeneca this week. John. Yeah. No, it, 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 that, it all speaks to the confusion that, that has been happening over the last, I would say, you know, a couple of months when it comes to the vaccines, you know, we saw we saw the confusion with respect to the, sh- the shipments and the supplies and how many we, we were getting as a country and how many were being distributed to the provinces. And then then we started we started hearing from the various health experts about you know AstraZeneca in particular and the fact that it was uh, there were some issues going on and then there was a blockage in some countries where they stopped it and then we did. So it, it is it is a huge issue. I I was on a webinar just before this call, uh, Libby, with uh, where Dr. Homer Kian the chair of the vaccine distribution was, was, was talking and he was asked a question about AstraZeneca and they're obviously going to do their best not to waste any vaccines, which means that they're going to try to distribute those that they can, but also there are other countries that they can ship to and will, will obviously ship to. So there's, there, I think there's things that are being happening, but it, it just, it, it, the overall confusion 
that we're hearing from not only other areas, other jurisdictions around the world, but but here is just mind-boggling. But um, you know, I think at the end of the day, the, the, the vaccines are being done. My daughter, you know, 19 years old, she got her uh, her first vaccine shot just the other day. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that that age cohort are are out there and, and getting it. I'm hearing stories about lineups at these pop up vaccine clinics where there are young people lining up to uh, to get the vaccine. So I think from that perspective, that that's good news and, and that should continue to uh, to happen because I think the more the folks under 30 get, get vaccinated, the better it is and, and the hope it is for all of us to be able to have some sort of a normal summer come, uh, come June, July. Well, yeah, but the, and there are also a lot of very vulnerable people who are annoyed that 18-year-olds are getting their first shot before they get their second because they're much more vulnerable. Uh, well, yeah, and I guess, you know, that, that's the other thing too, right? And I think some people are feeling, you know, getting their first shot, they feel quite lucky. I remember when I, when I got my first shot a few weeks ago now, almost a month ago now, I was delighted. I was happy. I was like, this is great. You know, I know that it's, I still have to do all the normal stuff like, you know, social distancing and masking, but you, there's a sense of being less vulnerable when you had your first shot. And my second, my second dose wasn't scheduled for until uh, late August. Uh, whether that's going to be moved up or not, I don't know. But I, at least I got my first shot. And I think everybody should at least get their first shot, uh, if not their second. Uh, Charles, do you think that the government will suffer damage if they end up wasting those 50,000 shots? Um, I think, I think, it would be, uh, I think they should. I think, the, the, the fact that these exist and the demands are there, notwithstanding some of the protests, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers that are out in force over the weekend, basically subjecting themselves to the virus, um, there are others who are more responsible, who are, who are in need, and a lot of young people want, will go to these clinics to have them done. I'm sure they will. And those that are upset that someone younger is getting it before themselves, that's... That's really unfortunate. I mean, I don't care who's getting a vaccine. I'm with Karen on this. Let everybody get it. Whoever can manage it effectively, let them have it. And I, I think, uh, I think I, I'm trying to be careful how I state this because I don't want to be too severe in, in my response to government, having been there myself, and I can appreciate the challenges they face. But the duty and responsibility here is to those citizens, give them those vaccines. Don't hold them back. Karen, do you agree with that? Absolutely. And, you know, from, from a citizen, from a resident perspective, it, it feels like the government is making decisions that are, um, that, are, that are not on the long game, but in the short term, right? So they've even said, well, we're not opening golf courses, and I'm sure it's within their decision-making framework. We're not opening golf courses until we can open patios and small business. Okay, but because that's fair to small business, I'm not even sure, but... Then they, they say, well, if we can't give first doses of AstraZeneca and not everyone's got their first dose, then nobody can get their second dose of AstraZeneca before over 80s get their first, their second dose. And so there is some, some, it appears to me that there is some misplaced sense of fairness lens that's going on some of these decisions. It actually isn't logical. <laughs> well, you, you know what? I I haven't heard that as a rationale. I mean, yesterday, Christine Elliott hinted that maybe golf courses and tennis courts will be open before June the 2nd. And we heard that summer camps are going to go ahead. I mean, it just seems there just does not seem to be any consisting guiding principles. Well, and that's it. And so it's being driven by, oh, well, if, you know, if, if this group gets an advantage over that group, then that won't seem fair. And so we can't do that. But meanwhile, the long game is 
okay, how do we keep people safe? That's what we're trying to do here. And so the best way we keep people safe is let them engage in safe activity. And if we have these doses, and I agree with the no more first doses for AstraZeneca because the supply may not be there, get them second dose, get those people second doses. We're getting a quarter of a million this week, AstraZeneca. So just roll it out to the people who have them and give the first shots to those who need them. And, and I know some people might feel ticked that they're not getting their second dose while other people are getting their first. But if that's the best way to keep you safe, then that's the things that we, those are the things that we should be doing. Yeah, but the people who are ticked that they're not getting their second doses, I'm talking about people who are stuck at home. I mean, we heard from the daughter of a 97-year-old who gets home care, and there's no guarantee that his home care workers are vaccinated. They won't tell you even right. if they know, uh, you know, it makes sense to me. There are people, I mean, I think some people are getting their second doses moved up, but there are people who are immunocompromised. And, uh, you know, really, I think it's a reasonable question. It is a reasonable question. But if you said, okay, these are expiring in two weeks and, are, you know, we need to use them in the next two weeks. And so they're going to give them a second doses. I don't think anybody would have an issue with that, personally. If you can explain why you're doing it and it makes sense, then that is explainable, defensible, and something that you should do, as opposed to letting them sit and go to waste. That's not a defensible position. I, I agree. That's not a defensible position. John, in terms of the whole flack over the, you know, their failure to let outdoor activities resume and summer camps and all of that, is, are, are they sustaining damage because of all that? Well, I think, you know, and just also just to address the, the, the early part about the AstraZeneca as well, Libby, just to say quickly that I also think, too, that some of the challenge was that once the, the bad news came about AstraZeneca, people just refused to go and get it. and People were canceling their appointments. So there was a lot of that that, that also happened that caused uh, this uh, this issue to be the way it is now. But on the issue of, of recreational centers, you know, look, the premier can't win for trying on this. And, and, and you know that no matter what he does, no matter what he did, there was going to be some vocal group that's going to go against him, whether or not he opened up recreation centers a month ago or two weeks ago when he when he extended this, or if he opens it up in two weeks from now, there's going to be people that are going to complain about it all the time. I think that the Premier showed leadership by saying, look, we're going to shut down for 28 days. It means everything from being outside and all the activities that, we, that he had said he had to do, including golf courses, because can you imagine if he had everything shut down but allowed golf courses to go to be open? You're going to get people saying, oh, there's, there's a Premier, you know, letting his friends and his buddies uh, allowed to be golfing and all this kind of stuff. So he took a lot of hit for it, but I think he did the right choice. And, and extending it to, to June 2nd, I think is also the right choice. Whether or not the numbers uh, dictate it being open or not, I suspect that, that they will open up given the fact that the weather's now turning better and people are getting out there. Um, you know, you just, you just can't win for trying on this, but I think he's doing the right thing now by shutting down and keeping things close until June 2nd. The numbers are going down. Hospitalizations, more importantly, are going down as well. Uh, Charles, is he doing the right thing by by keeping those things closed till June the second? You know, I, I appreciate John's comment. We're talking about you know being courageous in your decisions and standing up for individuals, but that wasn't a courageous decision. That was a politically motivated decision at, by way of perception. He didn't want to be perceived as supporting the affluent and his rich friends. He wanted to be seen as supporting those who are stuck at home and those less able to to enjoy outdoor activities and enjoy golf and tennis and rowing and be as be what it may. 
the science table made it clear, and he's not listening to the science table to that effect. They're telling him, we want people outdoors. We want people enjoying the fresh air and the activity and the mental stimulation and the physical stimulation that comes from it. Those are important things to do. But there is, that was a politically motivated decision, and we all know it, and he's admitted it as, you know, to that effect, that he didn't want to be seen as supporting uh, someone over somebody else. And to Karen's point, everyone's looking around and churning their heads to see who's getting something ahead of themselves or who has, who has the upper hand or a better opportunity. I celebrate anytime someone has a second vaccine. I don't care if they're ahead of me. I feel comfortable knowing that more and more people are being safe because that means I'll be more safe. And if we're doing enjoying the outdoors, and I said this in the previous program, golf, tennis, all these things is the same as playgrounds for kids. We need everybody to enjoy the outdoors, and that's not where uh, the virus is spreading. So let them let them have it. And I think he's going to. I think he's going to allow it. I and mean, certainly, Christine Elliott has made reference to the fact that he will. Well, yeah, and maybe before June the second, which would probably be a good thing. Karen, do you feel better um, in your situation if other people are stuck the same way? No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I that's think, the rash, his rationale. Right, I'm, I'm not suggesting you do. No, I'm just no, no. But again, like my facility has largely been closed since November, and mm. I don't wish this on anyone. You know, I, I, I wish for things to be open, and when people can open and do go back to work, go back to play, go back to living their life, that's what I am, you know, advocating for and and, and looking t- t- forward to. I don't take a position. Oh, I'm closed, so you have to be closed. I, I, that's not how we out of here. <laughs> and unfortunately, if I may, these mixed these communication efforts that are not—they're confusing, right? They're not consistent. So you have now campsites that are being open for the summer. Well, many of them are not going to do it, and they can't. It's either too late in the season, or they're not prepared for the outcome, and they don't trust the outcome. They don't know if, in fact, they'll be able to stay open thereafter. So many camps are, are choosing not to open. Well, and also, I would say, though, Charles, that he, the premier didn't say that they are open. He says that they're, they're hoping to be able to have them open up in July. He says most of them will open up in July, and his, his, the goal would be to have them open up if they, in fact, you know, if the numbers so to dictate. And I would imagine that if this thing is still in its height or if there's even the beginning of a fourth wave, they won't, well, they won't be opening up anytime soon. Well, yeah, and they, they have to stock up and hire staff and do all those things. Exactly. Well, for the overnight yeah. camp, they have to make a decision this week. Otherwise, the overnight camps can't open. And, you know, all the statistical information we had from last year demonstrates the camps are a safe place for kids to be. And so if the, if the government takes a position, oh, we can't decide because the numbers are where they are, not looking towards July, where we expect the numbers will be, then I think that's a, a huge disservice to the kids. And there'll be another summer of screen as opposed to a summer of outdoor fun. Okay, we're basically out of time. What would you like to leave us with, starting with Charles? Well, the notion of the efficacy of some of these doses, be it AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson versus Moderna and Pfizer, I, I would suggest that as time goes forward and as new variants come on stream, we're going to get booster shots, and no one's going to ask the question, which is the producer of those shots, like they do with flu. We don't ask, and we get them. Um, so I would just be confident in the medicine and, and, the, and what the health is telling us. That, that's an interesting observation. John? 
Well, I would just say that, you know, again, I think the governments across Canada, provincial and federal government, are all trying to do what they can to make sure that PPEs and all these things that are being are being produced in Ontario. So next time we've got our own stuff. And I'm, I was heartened to hear that Ottawa is putting a lot of money, I think close to $200 million into a Mississauga company to help them produce um, uh, mass-produced vaccines. That's a positive news. And I think that, you know, we need to have that development here so that we don't, we're not in this situation ever again. Karen? I was just heartened to hear that today we are actually outperforming the America, uh, the United States in terms of our percentage of population that's vaccinated. So if we can keep this up, then you know what? We will have won the long game, and that's pretty exciting. That's first vaccine, first dose. For first vaccine. Not yeah. full. Not full, no. For first. Not full. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, and we will talk again soon, as always. I appreciate your insights. Thank Thank you, Libby. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will be talking to a couple of epidemiologists about all those things. And there is a new study out of Spain on the safety and efficacy of mixing the doses. We'll talk to them about that as well. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lots of developments on the vaccine front. First, the good news. We are finally making headway in getting first doses into arms. And as of today, anyone over 18 can book an appointment. But what about second doses and the government's controversial decision to delay those for four months here in Ontario? As we talked about earlier in the show, we have 50,000 unused doses of AstraZeneca set to expire soon. And while using this product for a first dose has been paused, the current evidence is that the likelihood of a clot when it's used as a second dose is about one in a million. So is Ontario just going to let those go to waste while they sit around waiting for them or for the National Advisory Council on Immunization to make a decision. And there's new data from a Spanish study that shows that mixing vaccines is safe and effective. But over the weekend, a Canadian researcher involved in developing the AstraZeneca vaccine warned that the side effects from mixing vaccines can in fact be severe. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Dr. Raywat Dionandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University. Hello, and thanks so much for being with us. Okay, first, let us go to Dr. Dionandan. Uh, wh- what do you think of the government sitting on these 50,000 doses of, of AstraZeneca? It's curious. On the one hand, I get the need to, uh, to respond to the population's reluctance and hesitation around this vaccine. On the other hand, they're about to expire. These are precious, precious assets that the world needs. My feeling is if we're not going to use them, decide pretty soon and ship them to a place like India where clearly the benefits well outweigh the risks, and we can use mRNA doses for everyone else here. Um, unless we make a quick decision right now about who gets the second doses. 
Well, that's that's one option, but to me, it's 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 not at all clear that mixing the doses is a good idea. And I have even anecdotally heard from lots of people who had a first dose of AstraZeneca who said, "I'd be happy to get it." What's the problem if the number shows one in a million, Doctor Evans? Yeah, well, I, I think we kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, uh, Doctor Dionandon just made a point. Listen, these. AstraZeneca vaccine was about half of the vaccination that went into the UK, and we've seen what impact that's had in the UK. Uh, they now have a strong plan for reopening based on the fact that it provides great protection. I would be a little bit, um, I guess I would be a little bit concerned about saying that mixing the vaccines produces serious consequences. What it does is that some of the symptoms that we associate with any of these vaccines, sore arm, fevers, fatigue, muscle pain, stuff like that, are a little bit more profound in people who got a different vaccine on their first and second doses, but none of it suggests that there's an uh, increased safety signal problem. And as you said, uh, second doses of AstraZeneca have not been associated with as high a risk for the development of that vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic uh, thrombosis problem. So uh, other than making sure that that interval is right, it's about three months for AstraZeneca, probably pushing them forward. But I totally agree with with my, my uh, I'll call him my good friend because he and I know each other from Twitter, is like, if we're not going to use it, we need to send it around the world where it can be used. And right now, I would certainly agree India is a great place to send it to. Well, I want to take that up. And, you know, when we had those preliminary results on mixing vaccines last week, it, it sounded like it was no big deal. Uh, on the weekend, I heard from Dr. John Bell. Now, obviously, he's an interested party. He was one of the developers of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But uh, he used, a, what was the clinical term he used? It was something like um, a severe reactogenity. I mean, I don't know. He, he yeah. made it sound like it could be really quite bad. Yeah, he's talking about reactogenicity. So that's like what, what happens to you when you get uh, administered a substance, in this case a vaccine. And what he's talking about is exactly that. The reactogenicity that we're seeing is simply some of the effects that what happen when you stimulate the immune system with an antigenic uh, compound. Um, in this case, it's a, a spike protein that's that's facilitated by either the messenger RNA or the adenovirus vector DNA to produce it. It does not suggest in what I've read and looked at within that article that there's a safety issue with mixing the vaccines. Hmm. So uh, what do you make of what he said? He was very critical of our government's response, saying that their reaction to AstraZeneca is based on hearsay, not facts. Dr. Dionandon? It was, it's curious. I mean, I respect him deeply. He's clearly a much smarter man than me. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Dr. Uh, as Jerry was saying just now, is absolutely right. We define severe a bit differently here. Severe to me is does it require hospitalization. From the data I've seen, none of the mix and match people end up hospitalized because of these reactogenic reactions. In fact, I would argue that some of these reactions might be due to a superior immunogenic response. Maybe it's even you know, better than keeping it same, same. Okay. So well. his, criti- his criticism of, of uh, our approach... I mean, it's fair. Uh, anyone uh, can criticize it. But it seems to me that we are succeeding in getting more first doses into more arms than we would have otherwise had. So at the end of the day, I think we're going to be shown to be correct. Uh, let's go to this Spanish study that just came out this morning. It's the Combivax study. And it found that the presence of antibodies in the bloodstream was between 30 and 40 times higher in people who got the follow-up Pfizer than the control group who received only one AstraZeneca dose. I'm not sure that that's comparing 
apples and apples, two doses compared to one, but but it also found that there were more antibodies after a Pfizer dose than after a second AstraZeneca dose. Yeah, and uh, I'll just answer that because this is something that we have been observing is that the, the different platforms of the vaccines tend to induce a stronger response in parts of the immune system than others. And if you want to simplify the immune system, which, by the way, is very complex, is you can talk about antibody production and you can talk about T-cell responses. What we know about the adenovirus vector vaccines is they seem to induce a more of a stronger T-cell response. And that's not measurable easy. easily. You have to look at T-cells in a different way. The mRNA vaccines tend to stimulate the humoral system, which produces antibodies, which are really easy to measure. So you can measure antibodies a lot. I would just always warn people to be careful with, with looking at antibody levels in isolation because it's a surrogate marker. The marker we really care about is, does it prevent you from getting sick? Does it prevent you from getting infected? And antibodies can be part of that signal. But the antibody measurement itself is a, is a marker that is a, you, you want to say it, it functions as a surrogate for what you ultimately care about, which is did it prevent disease or did it prevent infection? And that's where people sometimes get pulled astray. You have to understand exactly how the immune system works. And what we think happens is that T-cell responses protect you from getting sick and dying, and antibody responses probably are important in that aspect, but also in the aspect of actually preventing you from getting infection. That study in Spain had volunteers between the age of 18 and 59. So uh, is that a problem in terms of what the reaction might be in older people? Well, we know that younger individuals tend to have more of that reactogenicity that you were talking about. So uh, that's because their immune systems are very vigorous and it is principally a component of the immune system is causing that reactogenicity. So that's a younger population, right? That's that's basically young adults to middle-aged adults and not including elderly individuals. Elderly individuals may have a little bit less reactogenicity. We you know it's it's it generally as a generic thing. Uh, and they also tend to have slightly lower responses to vaccines in general than young people do. So it is important to look at the population that's being studied to determine uh, what's going on exactly there. But again, we have to be very careful looking at surrogate markers and not the clinically relevant marker that's important. Okay, for the record, I, I really resent for, for referring to people over 59 as elderly. I do too, for a good reason. I'm over 59. <laughs> okay, let's take a call from Dave in Etobicoke. Hello, Dave. Oh, hi. I have a question regarding the variants. Um, we hear it said that there's a UK variant, an Indian variant, the South African variant, and the words used are that it was first identified in those geographies. So I'm trying to understand, is there something unique in their environment that made that variant? Or another way to put it is, do, are variances that we have in Canada imported? Or will they just naturally develop? So at some point in time, we'll say, there's a Canadian variant. Good question. If you don't mind. I mean, these variants arise because there's lots of transmission happening. So places in the world where lots of people are getting the disease are the places where the variants will arise. Variants arise because the virus has an opportunity to, to test itself, to play around. So the more people who are infected, the more opportunity the virus has. And in fact, the more sick people are, uh, then the more opportunity the virus is to sort of strengthen itself against uh, the antibodies that are present. So uh, the variants arise from places like India and Brazil and South Africa and the UK because that's where a lot of people happen to have the disease. Will a Canadian variant arise? It's always possible. 
I would say the odds are against it because we don't have nearly as much transmission as in those other uh, places in the world. And as we get a handle on this disease in the next few years, the rate at which variants will be produced will be lowered. But expect more to arise because this disease is nowhere near tamed yet. So expect you know, a few more over the next few years. Thank you, yeah, Dave. I totally, I totally agree with Raywa. That's exactly the, the, the point. And the fact is, is that once you drop the levels of infection low, there's very little viral replication going on. The virus, therefore, even though it randomly mutates, really doesn't have an advantage anymore. Thank you. Thank you. We've got to take another break. We'll be back with more from epidemiologists Dr. Ray Dionandan and Dr. Gerald Evans. Before we go to break, the numbers to call if you have questions or comments, especially on all the brouhaha over AstraZeneca, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about vaccines, the rollout, and also about uh, all the problems, especially with communications around AstraZeneca. And my question is this. Is there another country that it is in a really similar position that we are in where we've had a lot of people vaccinated with AstraZeneca with just one dose and now waiting to see what to do about the second one? Or are we pretty unique in that, uh, Dr. Evans? Uh, well, certainly the, some of the European countries have, which have been using AstraZeneca, uh, have at times sort of paused um, how they're looking at the uh, future rollout and whether it should just be confined to second doses for people who've already received it uh, versus continuing to use it as first doses. But I would say it probably reflects a certain, I would say a certain degree of Canadiana. Uh, we tend to be a very cautious people. Uh, we really um, uh, have a hard time, and I think we tend to follow uh, very strongly some sort of, you know, what you would say is a precautionary principle. So if even though we're only seeing, um, you know, the thrombosis problem with AstraZeneca in somewhere between 1 in 50,000 within certain groups up to, you know, 1 in 250 to 500,000 in other groups with first doses, the sort of general view is, well, let's pause and wait. And plus, we've got so much of the other vaccines coming in. So I think that's a little bit of a reflection of, of how we are in Canada. Uh, yeah, Dr. Dianandin, because I'm, I'm not, I mean, I know that there are places that, you know, Denmark isn't using it. I know that the European Union is actually suing AstraZeneca for not delivering on time. But I, I can't think of a place where you have a, a million or more people who've got this thing waiting to see what's next. Yeah, neither can I. I know Denmark has at least some people getting second doses with a non-AstraZeneca vaccine. So the mix and matching is already happening in real time in some places. But I don't think it's at anything resembling scale. So I think we're unique in that sense. You have to keep in mind, though, the AstraZeneca vaccine is the preferred vaccine of the world in the sense that it's the one that most countries want because it's affordable. It can be stored at a comfortable temperature and distributed easily. So I think over 100 countries use it right now, whereas about 78 use Pfizer. Um, which is the next most common one. So there is no shortage of demand for this vaccine, which is why our supply needs to be set somewhere if we're not going to use it. Well, exactly. And what I have heard explained is that 
you know, that that it's important for us to help vaccinate the rest of the world so that there be fewer variants. It's not only the right thing to do, it's the selfish thing for us to do. It's self-serving. If we can, pandemics are global. The word means a global disease. So the disease doesn't go away unless we extinguish it everywhere. So if it's brewing in India and Brazil, we have to extinguish it in India and Brazil because it affects the rest of the world. Variants will arise. We'll get reinfected by travel. It affects global economics. It affects everything. So selfishly keeping vaccine to ourselves may sound like an appropriate thing to do to get our economy up and rolling faster, but ultimately it does not solve the larger problem. We have to extinguish this fire everywhere where it is burning around the world simultaneously. Let's take a call from Barb in Orangeville. Hello, Barb. Yes, hello there. I'm calling because uh, I'm in a long-term care residence, and uh, I had the asterisk, no, I had the Moderna shot in January, and we were to get the second one the 28th of February, and it turned out they gave it to us a week early, the 27th, and it was also the Moderna. And I'm wondering, does that lessen the... uh, quality of the shot being a week early, and would we need to get a booster at some time? Sounds like you got it right on time, unlike most people. I will let the doctors answer. Yeah, I'm happy to step in on this one because there was another study that just was released and published about the issue of what the ideal interval should be. And if you know anything about vaccine science, which I seem to know a little bit about as an infectious disease doctor, is the ideal interval between a first and second shot to get the, the durability of the response and everything is about three months. And that's because the first shot affects a population of cells which start the initial process. And then you have to wait for that process to die down and then administer it about three months to get an effect on what we call memory cells. There's memory B cells and T cells. So that study showed that, in fact, if you wait a longer interval, you get a better, more durable response. Some of us have been saying that for months now. And it's important, and again, I've said this to people before, the, the, the three-week interval for Pfizer and four-week for Moderna was all based on the fact that that's how they constructed their clinical trial. They wanted to do it quickly, get some results out, get it approved, and get it into people's arms to help control the pandemic. It is not the way we would normally want to administer a vaccine, which is typically three months in between a first and second dose. And what we're seeing now is that vaccine science is maintained when we're using these mRNA vaccines. The, the question that your callers asked is a fantastic one. It's the one I'm being asked a lot. And it is possible that in order to maintain the durability of response, they may require actually a third shot because the first two shots were very close together um, and not idealized in what we know about vaccine science. And like I said, that study that was released recently from uh, the group in Birmingham basically shows that you that three-month interval is better than a three-week or four-week interval. And and that holds for MRR because my understanding was yes for the viral vector, but no for the mRNA. No, it, it applies to the mRNA vaccines as well. There was a mixed bag of people that they looked at, both with AZ, the AstraZeneca vaccine, and people with the Pfizer vaccine. And that interval, in fact, the study looked more specifically at the Pfizer vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, than the Astra. The AstraZeneca has always been mandated to be three months between first and second shot. Okay, well, Barb, now, thanks. Can, can yes. I ask one more question? Am I uh, better to get that third shot now? having had the second shot in February. I don't think you'll be able to get it, even if you want it. Even if I wanted to, eh? Okay. I'm just getting the information, and I'm going to pass it on to the retirement home here, because we all got it at the same time. 
Okay, well... So you are well protected right now, ma'am, but, and, you know, I would just say stay tuned for what advice is going to be coming and emerging out. Two shots together still provides a very good protection in terms of what we see with vaccine efficacy measurements uh, based on the original intervals done in the trial. Good for at least a year. To okay, okay, thanks, Barb. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's, let's go to Doreen in Newmarket. Hello, Doreen. Oh, Hello. Um, Yeah, what I was wondering, I know there's a certain batch of AstraZeneca that will be no good after the end of this month, which is not very much longer. It's only just over a week. Um, Could that not at least be used as a second shot for people that already had it? Because I would think that it's too late to send that to another country. By the time it was sent to another country, it would have, you know, be, be no good. Yeah, we've been talking about that. I'll uh, let the doctors address it again. Thanks, Doreen. Sure, I'll take that one. Yeah, it expires in a week, but guess what? We can get it to India tomorrow if we wanted to, and they could put it in arms the very next day. So a week is a lot of time uh, for this vaccine to do some good. So I think we should start making that decision as soon as possible. Yeah, I don't know why they're dithering. Uh Dr. Evans, uh, do you have any insight on whether we're, we'll get a, d- a decision on that? Yeah, I, I mean, the process is moving along as, as quick as it can, but I, I would, <laughs> I guess I'd big my pitch that unfortunately when decisions like this fall in the political arena, uh, that's where they, you tend to get sort of a lot of dithering going on. And, and I, I totally agree with what Ray Watt was saying. You can get this into people's arms the day after tomorrow in some countries where you ship it to. That political decision-making is always made on the idea of, are we going to be criticized? Are we going to be applauded for our efforts or whatever else? Because, you know, the science tells us, look, if you're not going to use it, give it to a place where it can be used quickly, efficiently, and effectively. Now, isn't the theory that NASA doesn't make political decisions, that they're only moved by the science? <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. My, my, co- my colleagues who work on NASA uh, definitely look at the science. They provide advice, which is not mandatory for any government to follow, uh, but it's based on a really good analysis of the science. I think, you know, they're continuing to look at where that evidence lies um, and, and to sort of try and give the best advice. I would say one of the things that happens with groups that are meeting to do things like this is, is when they're roundly criticized. And when NASI made the decision about preferred vaccines with the mRNAs over AstraZeneca, there was a lot of criticism that went around. It was about communication, mind you. But, but that really, uh, that sort of once bitten, twice shy uh, issue is an important one as we're working our way through the pandemic. You know, Mike Ryan said a year ago, speed is the enemy, is, is the problem. If you're not moving quickly, you're going to make this um, some mistakes at some point. But if, if it, that's what's going to stop you from moving forward, then that's not a good thing. Well, yeah, and they, they could have somebody who knows how to communicate. We're almost out of time, Dr. Dianand, and what would you like to leave us with? The end is there. Some optimism there. We're on the path to normal, so just hang in there. We're almost there. And Dr. Evans? Oh, boy, he said it all for me. Yeah, I, I think we're really moving quickly now. We're going to have lots of vaccine. This is going to be a, a summer of emerging from uh, the cocoon of the pandemic, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that's good to hear. Nice to end on such a positive note. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray Dianandin and Dr. Gerald Evans. We appreciate your time. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.